Today we're going to talk about the progressive movement in America. And when we look at what we have come to call progressivism, we see elements of both liberalism and conservatism. When progressives looked at American society in the early 1900s, they saw much that needed changing. This is where the liberal part comes in. As we saw last time and the time before, America was full of all sorts of inequalities in the early part of the 20th century. Racial inequality, gender inequality, political inequality, but especially economic inequality. A small number of men made millions of dollars while the average American worker made pennies. Rich men lived lives of luxury and privilege literally on the backs of American workers. The lives of children born into working-class families in America between 1870 and 1930, as I discussed last time, were basically over before they started. And to progressives, all this was an obscenity, a mockery of what America was supposed to be about. America, to them, was about opportunity, the ability to rise out of poverty, to cross class barriers, to transcend them, to start with perhaps nothing or very little and work your way up to a small business and then make it a bigger one. Not necessarily a big business, but a bigger business. And moreover, to progressives, to do this the right way, the fair way, through what you knew, not who you knew. Creating wealth, not living off it. Progressives, then, wanted a fairer, more just America. And this quest for justice, remember how I ended my lecture last time, especially economic justice, was one part of the progressive character. But there was another element to the progressive mindset, and this was the quest for order. Remember, that's the other word that I used at the end of my lecture on Friday. Progressives were not radicals. They were not militants. They were not members of the IWW. In fact, they feared disorder every bit as much as the large industrial capitalists did, as much as J.P. Morgan did, as much as Henry Ford did, as much as Andrew Carnegie did. Progressives wanted justice, especially economic justice, so there would not be disorder to forestall the violence, even the revolution, that they were convinced would occur without reform of the economic and political system. In this sense, progressives were conservative, although not necessarily in the J.P. Morgan sense. Progressives, as I said last time, wanted justice and order. Certainly a difficult balancing act in the context of the early 1900s, where there was so much injustice, and consequently, the potential for so much disorder. The progressive's task was convincing the average American worker, the average American who was poor, that the nation's economic system needed only a reforming, not a complete overhaul, and that change could come about from within the existing system and not from a new system. And the progressives had to do this convincing, so to speak, in an atmosphere in which radical alternatives to capitalism existed in the form of socialism, 
socialism, called for government ownership of industry and not mere regulation of industry. And an end to capitalism, not merely a reformation of it, albeit peacefully. Most socialists were peaceful, without violence. But there also were, as we discussed on Friday, more, even more violent alternatives, like the Wobblies, like the IWW. Now, groups like the IWW played a kind of siren song for the American worker, offering them, at least economically, what the prevailing capitalist system apparently did not. Come with us, the IWW said, and we will give you a guaranteed living wage. Come with us, the IWW and other more violent radicals said, and we will give you a decent place to live. Come with us, the IWW would say, and we will give you protection if you get sick or injured, unlike the company you work for. Now, there was a cost to this siren song, as I call it, uh, of material security uh, that groups like the IWW rarely mentioned. The cost was in political freedom, especially freedom of speech, and in democratic institutions like free elections. The IWW, uh, its protestations to the contrary, was not really a democratic organization. But when men are starving, when men are exploited, political freedom seems much less important than economic security. And it was the progressive's task to lead the average American worker away from groups like the socialists and the IWW to make him believe not in revolution but in reform and believe that there still could be justice in America if there was order. Now this quest for order and justice, orderly justice, if you will, was what the progressives were all about. Now, how did the progressives propose to obtain this orderly justice? Well, their central idea was the use of the government or the state, remember the word that I used and explained last time, the state, to intervene into the economic system of the nation and the political system of the nation on behalf of justice, on behalf of the less powerful in American society. Workers, the poor, women, consumers. Now, this idea of using an interventionist government to make society fairer was not a new one. There was the prior example of the radical Republicans during Reconstruction after the Civil War in the 1860s and 1870s, using the federal government through civil rights legislation to help African Americans, uh, the freedmen, uh, in the South. There was also the example of the populists in the 1890s, the great uh, agrarian revolt uh, uh, in the 1890s, which demanded government ownership of many of our great industries. But the progressives in the early part of the 20th century were the first to sell this idea of government intervention to large segments of American society. Until the advent of the progressives in the early 1900s, it was customary to view government as the enemy of freedom, the enemy of liberty. Look at the first ten amendments to the Constitution, for example. Every one of them limits the power of the government and tries to protect the individual. It's traditional in America to this day 
in many quarters, to argue that government should stay out of people's lives as much as possible, that the government which governs least is best, and that intrusive government is a form of tyranny. You know, if you, if you don't believe me, just look at the Declaration of Independence. In many ways, it's viewed as a radical document. It also can be viewed as a conservative anti-government document. But progressives in the early 1900s were able to sell large segments of the American public uh, on the idea that government intervention was not a threat to liberty, to freedom, but actually a protector of freedom. And the progressives' significance historically is that from this time forward in America, from the early 1900s forward, there has been and is a substantial amount of support among Americans for the idea of government activism on behalf of the weaker members of our society. Even today, we still take a huge amount of government intervention in our economic and political life for granted. If you don't believe me, look at the events after September 11, uh, 2001, as a small government president becomes a big government advocate. The era of big government is not over and probably never will be, thanks in large part to the progressives, who can be credited, or depending on your perspective, blamed for helping to have started it all. So, who were these progressives? Who were these people? Well, this is a question that historians are constantly asking and wrestling with because the progressives are an amorphous, shifting group. You can't really get their, your finger on them. Some are in the upper class, some are working class, but I think it's fair to say primarily the progressives are middle class in their orientation, in their culture. And of course, this in and of itself makes them hard to identify since the idea of being middle class itself in America is so amorphous and so hard to identify. But I think we can describe certain characteristics, certain general characteristics uh, of the progressives. First, they were mostly Protestants, uh, mostly old stock descended from, from the English or from Scots-Irish. Uh, uh, some exceptions uh, in New York, uh, they were largely Catholic and Jewish. Uh, uh, New York City, uh, uh, they, they, they were. Uh, but for the most part, uh, uh, they, are, they are Protestants. And as primarily Protestants, the uh, progressives in the early 1900s uh, carried almost what we would call a religious-like zeal into their reforms. I think, to a large extent, these progressives, these Protestant progressives, were successors to the middle-class Protestant reformers of the pre-Civil War years. In the uh, 1820s and 1830s, uh, there was a great religious revival in the United States that, that swept the country called the Second Great Awakening. This is in the 1820s and 1830s. And not only was this a religious revival, it, 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 it moved into the political realm as well. Because in, if you want to look at, let's say, where the anti-slavery impulse in America came out of, it comes out of this religious revival, the Second Great Awakening. The temperance movement comes out of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, the women's rights movement comes out of the Second Great uh, Awakening. And so my view is that the progressive, the Protestant progressives of the early part of the 20th century are the lineal successors of the people who were in the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 1830s and started all these other political movements, most notably anti-slavery. 
And as reformers, and reformers of personal behavior, and as I said, descendants of these earlier Second Great Awakening reformers, the progressives were culturally conservative. They were moralistic. They viewed the greed of bosses, political bosses, or large corporation heads, as bad, as evil. They were self-righteous, even sanctimonious. Progressives, in fact, didn't approve of much of the behavior of the poor of America, even as they professed to try to help them. Progressives, for example, disapproved of drinking. They disapproved of loose sexuality, especially sexuality of women. Uh, they were very Victorian in this regard. They disapproved of the working class amusements that I talked about uh, last time. You know, the dance halls, the amusement parks, the vaudeville shows. They saw these as morally corrupting. And they disapproved of working class behaviors themselves. Especially working class loyalty to political machines, urban political machines, which the progressives viewed, and quite rightly so, as corrupt and venal. But I think it's fair to say that there was an element of anti-working class cultural prejudice in the very middle class progressives' distaste for the political machines. I think. The progressives looked down on these urban working class Americans who supported these political machines as uneducated, as ignorant, and as such bad citizens and maybe even bad people. Because Progressives believed in a responsible, educated citizenry and believed that working-class voters often failed this test. Thus, there was more than a touch of elitism to the progressives, class elitism, a sense of the need for social control that inferior, meaning working-class people, needed to be controlled and educated. A sense among the progressives that the best people should be running society the experts who would know what was good for everyone, the rationalizers who would make society run efficiently for everyone. And who were these experts, these rationalizers, these best people? Well, surprise, surprise, they were the progressives themselves. In the progressives' view, neither the greedy upper class or the ignorant working class was fit to run American society. They were, only them, the sober, honest, responsible, public-spirited, educated, rational, and of course selfless Protestant middle class. That. Thus, in the, in the progressives' relationship with the American working class, we can see a sort of duality, a love-hate relationship, if you will. On the one hand, the progressives wanted to help the working class. On the other, they showed a certain cultural contempt for the working class, a lack of understanding why a working class American might support a political machine. And there were good reasons for this. As we can see in our reading for the day, uh, 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 the uh, George Washington Plunkett Honest Graft piece. Urban political machines provided jobs and social services and connections for poorer Americans, for working class Americans, who otherwise would have been on their own. Middle class progressives who didn't have these kinds of worries didn't really understand this. To them, being a good citizen alone was enough. 
you look at Lincoln Steffen's piece that we read for today on the Philadelphia machines. There's an attitude in that piece of why doesn't somebody honest put a stop to all this behavior and teach these working class ignoramuses what good government is. There's an attitude, an edge to what Steffens is writing about. He's a progressive. And middle class Protestant progressives also didn't understand why working class Americans, who they ostensibly wanted to help, persisted in celebrating their ethnic and religious cultures and languages. Celebrated being Italian, being Polish, being Slavic, being Jewish. In speaking Italian or Polish or Yiddish or Hungarian. In practicing Catholicism or Judaism or Orthodox Christianity. In other words, for not being Protestant and Anglo-Saxon, which the progressives seem to equate with being American. The progressives then wanted working class ethnic Americans to be like them. They wanted America to be like them. And thus, as a result of this ambivalent relationship that the progressives had with the ethnic working class in America, the progressives, in the interest of helping American society as a whole, reforming American society as a whole, sponsored reforms, as we will see, that had the effect, intended or not, of circumscribing ethnic working class political power, hurting them while helping them, so to speak. Now, progressive attitudes towards more well-to-do Americans, towards the big businessmen, the financiers, the leaders of industrial capitalism, were, I think, more clear-cut. Progressives believed that American capitalism had gotten way too big and way too anti-competitive. There was too much economic power, in the view of the progressives, concentrated in too few hands, too many monopolies, too many near-monopolies, too many interlocking directorates. We read about these uh, for today with Louis Brandeis criticizing them and J.P. Morgan saying, in effect, interlocking directorates. What interlocking directorates? You know, interlocking directorates where the same small number of capitalists sit on the board of directors of hundreds of corporations, many of which are ostensibly competing with each other. Progressives saw all this and the related, related problems of influence peddling whereby rich capitalists would buy corrupt machine politicians, and the problem of market domination, where large corporations could deny access to smaller startup businesses, uh, which couldn't even get their foot in the door. Progressives saw all this and were outraged, and vowed to use government regulation to level the playing field, to break up the monopolies and the large corporations. And really to turn back the hands of time to an earlier period of free and open competition between smaller businesses that would be fair, that would be a true meritocracy, where the most innovative company, not only the one with the most influence, would be successful. Now, this ideal of free competition between a lot of small companies uh, of what... Woodrow Wilson, a leading progressive who we'll talk about a little more later, uh, called a free field and no favor, may have been just that, an ideal, a myth, and not real. 
Because there's a question of how far back you would have to turn back the clock to find this ostensible time, this ideal time, of free competitions between small companies in the United States. How far would you have to turn back the clock? To 1830? To 1800, maybe? And, of course, there's a question of whether you'd even want to do this, whether you'd want to go back in time. Since the efficiency and the productivity of American industry as I talked about last time, was so impressive and provided so much in the way of material goods, consumer goods, a raised standard of living for all Americans, even poor ones. If progressives in the early part of the 20th century really wanted to turn back the clock of scale and competition in American industry to, say, let's say, 1820, they would also have to, of course, accept an 1820s standard of living, meaning no electricity, no railroads, no telephones, no skyscrapers, no steel, no automobiles, no mass-produced clothing, etc., etc., etc. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, who was president of the United States from 1901 to 1909, and to a lesser extent, Woodrow Wilson, who was president from 1913 to 1921, eventually understood all this, that you really can turn back the clock, and changed the philosophy of progressivism from one of breaking up all large corporations, all large concentrations of economic power, to regulating these concentrations. Uh, allowing large businesses to exist and allowing even some monopolies to exist as long as they behave themselves. That is, as long as they acted in the public interest, as long as they did not price gouge, as long as they didn't use unfair or illegal means to force smaller comp competitors out of the market, uh, as long as they conduct their labor relations in a reasonably above-board manner. Theodore Roosevelt especially wanted these good corporations to survive and to break up only the bad corporations, the bad monopolies. Thus, preserving American industrial efficiency and productivity and the high American standard of living uh, while getting rid of the combinations and monopolies that were truly injurious to competition. Now, this brand of progressivism which Theodore Roosevelt called the new nationalism, in which bigness alone in a, in a business was no curse, came to dominate the reform impulse in the United States during the first two decades of the 20th century. And even Woodrow Wilson, who when he became president in 1913, came in on a platform of breaking up all large concentrations of capital and restoring that earlier mythic, earlier uh, level playing field a platform that Wilson called the new freedom in opposition to the new nationalism of Theodore Roosevelt, even Wilson eventually came around to his predecessor Theodore Roosevelt's view that some large concentrations of economic power were good. In other words, Woodrow Wilson became a Rooseveltian new nationalist. But however they came out on this specific issue, whether they supported Roosevelt's new nationalist approach or Wilson's new freedom approach, progressives were all idealists to some degree, looking to a fairer America, especially a fairer economic system. Uh, whether they located this better and fairer America in the recent past, in the distant past, or in an improved version of the present. 
and progressives were ready to use the power of the educated middle class, of the experts, and most importantly, the power of the federal government to achieve their goals. Now, like most idealists, progressives were optimists for all its inequality, for all its privilege, for all its misdistribution of wealth, for all its potential for revolution, violent and otherwise, with socialists, the Wobblies, other radical organizations waiting in the wings, progressives were confident, almost arrogantly so, that they could save America from itself, that they could give America both justice and order. And how did progressives propose to accomplish these goals? Well, to answer this, let's run down their agenda and then see how it was put into practice. First, on a state level, by Wisconsin's own Robert La Follette, uh, and then on a national level by Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who incidentally, while linked philosophically, couldn't stand each other personally. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat, thought Roosevelt, who was a Republican, uh, was a blustery uh, windbag, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt thought uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson was a wuss. We all know what a wuss is, right? Okay. Now, this was the progressive program. First, public ownership of utilities. Government would run, or at least closely regulate, municipal transportation, you know, streetcars, electric companies, electric lighting, gas companies. There would be an end to privately owned utilities, which had a tendency to bribe public officials. Uh, uh, it's very rare today. We take for granted that our that our public util our, our utilities are public utilities. We call them public utilities. That was not always the case in America. You know, if you wanted, uh, you know, if you, if if you wanted your uh, uh, to take a bus or a streetcar, it, it might be a private company. Uh, uh, if you wanted, uh, you know, electricity, it might be a private electric company. We have very very little. Uh, of that anymore. Another aspect of the progressive program as we go down the, the list here, uh, the destruction of political machines. You know, as I said, progressives viewed these political machines as morally evil. Uh, these machines and the, their politicians took bribes for, to get city contracts. They sold city contracts. The progressives wanted to destroy both the uh, briber, public utilities, and the bribee, the political machines. Now, progressives also wanted direct primaries, where the voters would choose their nominees directly and not the political machines. Again, something we take for granted today. Uh, and this, of course, is an aspect of the progressive program that would hurt working class voters because it would hurt the political machines. Progressives also wanted the city commissioner and city manager system of municipal government. Here, the administration of the city was taken away from an elected official, uh, uh, meaning from the mayor, meaning from the political machines, oftenly, often. Uh, and a nonpartisan administrator or administrators would be selected to run the, the, the city in, a, in an efficient and nonpolitical manner. Uh, these were unelected. And this model of the city manager or city commission, it's clearly based on the model of the corporation executive, uh, who is not necessarily a good person, but a model of efficiency, which is what attracted the progressives. Now, this, too, had the effect of disenfranchising working-class voters. 
continuing with the progressive program. They wanted the direct election of United States senators, and they got this pretty quickly. Uh, it was accomplished by the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which was ratified in 1913. Before 1913, the United States senators were elected by the state legislatures, not directly by the people. Congressmen were directed, directly elected by the people, but not the senators. And of course, the state legislatures could be bought and sold. Now, this illustrated the progressive idea of direct democracy, that there should be nothing between the people uh, and their government. Progressives also advocated the initiative, the referendum, and the recall. Three direct democracy mechanisms. Again, more attempts at direct popular democracy. Under the initiative, the voters themselves could pass a bill could pass a law. Not the legislator, legislature, the voters themselves could actually pass a bill by voting for it. Under the referendum, the voters could actually repeal an act of the legislature, again, directly. And under the recall, voters could remove state officials, even if they had been elected. Uh, this is still, uh, uh, still a feature of, of, of a number of state constitutions, and it was used most recently in California, our largest state, uh, in 2003, when the governor, Gray Davis, was actually recalled. You may remember some of, uh, some of this. And replaced by the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So the progressives have some relevance to today. Now, progressives generally also wanted voting reforms, or what they call voting reforms. They actually wanted restrictions on the right to vote, this idea of the educated citizenry again. They wanted personal registration laws. They wanted residency requirements. They wanted voter identification. In fact, we see a lot of that uh, being talked about today uh, uh, as well, another link between the progressive period and our own. They basically, uh, 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 progressives did, wanted the end of non-citizen voting. They wanted you to have, you had to be a citizen to, to be able to vote. They wanted also the secret ballot. Again, something we take for granted. Now, all of this, again, had the effect of cutting down the number of working class, ethnic, meaning non-Protestant, voters. The progressives wanted only voters who understood the responsibilities of informed citizenship. Only they should be able to vote, which is why they supported these kinds of personal registration and ID, voting ID laws, because they questioned, the progressives did, the immigrant's ability to be an informed citizen. And this also explains why progressives didn't really protest very much during the disenfranchisement of southern black voters, which was reaching a peak in the early 1900s, and why they supported women's suffrage, since middle-class white women were ostensibly informed and responsible voters. Continuing with the progressive program, a graduated income tax. This is another part of the progressive program. Uh, this tax, which is known now as a progressive income tax, hurt the rich by taking a higher percentage of their income. You know, the more money you make, uh, the, you know, the, the higher percentage of income you are, uh, you are taxed. Well, this is another one of the progressive reforms that got this one through. And also, finally, they wanted uh, uh, labor reforms, reforms in the way workers were treated. They wanted a federal minimum wage law. They wanted restrictions on child labor. They wanted workers' compensation laws. 
this especially would take a lot of power away from the urban machines because now the government would take care of you if you were hurt on the job, not the political machine. They wanted factory safety regulations and factory maximum hour regulations as well. So all of this, take all of this, put it together, and that is the progressive program. Now, the progressives who operated not only on a federal level, but on a state level, of course, had various degrees of success from state to state in passing this agenda. But one notable area of success was this state, Wisconsin. Here in Wisconsin, beginning in 1900, when he was elected governor, Robert La Follette, who is closely associated with the idea of progressivism, made Wisconsin synonymous with progressive reform, uh, uh, a connection that it has and holds even to this day. Now, it's hard to believe and it's hard to imagine Wisconsin as a corrupt state in 1900 when La Follette uh, assumed the, uh, the governor's chair, but it was, although uh, uh, the state of Wisconsin has nothing on, uh, on New Jersey, believe me, in terms of uh, corruption. This is very mild, uh, at least by my standards. Uh, Wisconsin was corrupt in the early 1900s, largely because the private utilities and railroads, again, these are private companies, not public, uh, would pay off state officials. La Follette, who was a very uncompromising man, a very moralistic man, they called him Fighting Bob, and there's a picture of him uh, in, our, uh, uh, in our textbook. Take a look at that face. You, know, you don't want to mess around with a guy like that. I don't think you could buy a guy like that. Governor La Follette immediately and uncompromisingly set out to change this corrupt state of affairs in Wisconsin. And this was his program. First, tax the railroads. Then, have government, have state government limit utility rate increases. Remember, private companies, at least as of 1900. Limit railroad freight charges, which could hurt farmers so much. Pass civil service laws to prevent government jobs from being bought and sold. You had to take a test. Pass the state's first graduated income tax and one of the very first uh, in the country. Workers' compensation laws. Child labor laws. Minimum wage laws. Factory hour limitation laws. And direct primaries. And La Follette got all of this. He passed this total program in Wisconsin. And thus, La Follette came as close as any public official to enacting the entire progressive program in one state. And perhaps most importantly, what La Follette did was he involved government as a direct manager of economic relations in Wisconsin. He got government involved uh, in labor relations in the state of Wisconsin, in labor disputes. And he did this through what was known as the Wisconsin Industrial Commission. For the first time, government, well, at least state government here, was now intervening through the professors, the attorneys, and the other experts of the Wisconsin Industrial Commission in the economy to protect the interests of the workers. They would arbitrate labor disputes, settle labor disputes, or at least trying to serve as a neutral party here between labor and capital. And that was a big idea, certainly an innovative idea for its time. And La Follette's Wisconsin was a model for progressivism on a federal level. 
during the administrations of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson during the first two decades of the 20th century. In other words, both Roosevelt and Wilson were heavily influenced by La Follette. Now, Roosevelt, between 1901 and 1909, used the Sherman Antitrust Act, which had been passed in 1890, but not really enforced up until then. It prohibited combinations in restraint of trade. That's the words of the Sherman Act. Roosevelt used it for the first time in American history to actually break up a monopoly, the Northern Securities Railroad monopoly in 1902 and 1903. Heretofore, the Sherman Antitrust Act had only been used to break up unions. Now it was being used to break up actual companies. Roosevelt intervened in a labor strike on behalf of a union for the first time in American history when he compelled mine owners to arbitrate a dispute, uh, a strike actually, by the United Mine Workers, the uh, United Mine Workers Union, in 1902. Roosevelt made the federal government the final arbiter of railroad freight rates uh, when he sponsored the Hepburn Act of 1906. All of this he's getting basically from Robert La Follette. Roosevelt made the federal government the regulator of food quality under the Pure Food and Drug and the Meat Inspection Acts of 1906. And Roosevelt made the federal government the major decision maker on the use and the development of American natural resources through the Public Lands Commission, which Roosevelt established in 1903. So Roosevelt borrowed a great deal from La Follette, as did Woodrow Wilson during his presidency between 1913 and 1921, continuing the use of the federal government as an activist instrument of reform. Wilson established a progressive federal income tax in 1913, which we all bitch and moan about around April. At least I do. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what he established. He also helped pass the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 as well, uh, which brought the federal government into the regulation of the national banking system and through the control of interest rates and the money supply into the regulation of the economy itself, not directly, but indirectly, uh, a control that the Federal Reserve exerts even to this day. Uh, the recently retired Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, uh, in fact, is uh, 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 given a major share of the credit for uh, the prosperity uh, of the American economy in the 1990s. And uh, those of you who have uh, the pro position on uh, Ronald Reagan on Mount uh, Rushmore, uh, I would note that he was uh, appointed by Ronald Reagan. Now, Woodrow Wilson also helped pass a federal version of a workers' compensation law, eight-hour day law, limiting hours, child labor law, all of which, are, again, Robert La Follette had pioneered in uh, Wisconsin. And by the time the progressive impulse had crested in 1917 with America's entry into the First World War, which we'll talk about uh, on Friday. In fact, what Woodrow Wilson had done is identify his party, the Democratic Party, with the struggle of the poor, the worker, the union member, the common man, an identity that the Democratic Party would keep throughout much of the 20th century through the New Deal, the 1960s, and on into the present day. And perhaps more importantly, Wilson and other progressives had changed the rules 
of American political and economic life. They had sold the American public on the idea of the government, and especially the federal government, as a major player in the affairs of business, labor relations, the banking system, and even in the private lives of American uh, citizens. Henceforth, with the exception of the limited government advocate Calvin Coolidge, who was president between 1923 and 1929, the question would not be whether government would intervene in all these areas, but how it would do so. And that even includes the administration of Ronald Reagan. Progressivism, then, truly was the blueprint for the strong national state that we have become so familiar with today. Whether it had given, or whether progressivism had given America order and justice during the first two decades of the 20th century is, of course, a matter of one's perspective. But I think it's fair to say that in 1917, as the progressive impulse ended with the start of World War I, the end of the progressive period, 1917, America was more just as well as more orderly than it had been in 1900, when Robert La Follette was elected governor of Wisconsin. Now, not everything progressivism gave America was an unmitigated blessing, of course. Government regulators have the potential to turn into rigid bureaucrats. Experts can turn into elitist bullies, contemptuous of the average American citizen. And reformers can become zealots who see government intervention as a cure for all of the ills of American society. Certainly, these excesses can be laid at the door of the progressives. And they must bear at least some of the blame for the instances during the rest of the 20th century when government regulation went awry and became the enemy and not the protector of liberty. But in their optimism about the future of American society, their confidence that the United States had the resources to make that society more equal and more fair, in their sense of the grand possibilities of American life, the progressives represented one of the most important and enduring visions in this country's history. When Ronald Reagan, coming from a very different political perspective, said it was mourning in America, he was echoing, whether he realized it or not, the progressive's faith in America's power to make itself and make the world better. And speaking of the world, on Friday, we will see how that progressive faith fared during the most destructive war the world had ever seen, World War I. But before that, on Wednesday, we will talk about America's unique take on imperialism as it joined the rest of the world's powers in a quest for markets, for prestige, and for power overseas.